Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with D&D? I know I am, and you're probably saying, hmm, that doesn't sound like Chris Nizak. Well, it's not, because I am here with a special guest uh, for this week. It is the raucous, regal, and respected Rudy Rutenberg. Rudy, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks, Sean. That's a fantastic introduction. Yeah, I certainly, I'm just getting started, Rudy. I'm just getting started because I want to go through sort of where you are in the hobby at this point. And the list is long and illustrious. Uh, Rudy is the Maze Arcana co-creator, writer, showrunner, and executive producer. If you are familiar with his stream, he is the co-author of Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron and Morgrave Miscellany for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition as well as the adamantine bestseller Xanathar's Lost Notes to Everything Else, which he is the lead designer on. Uh, he is a multi-platform film producer for Dungeons & Dragons. His experience in acting and film producing and hosting and screenwriting and voice acting and working alongside major studios on titles like Argo, Fury, Baby Daddy, Finest Hour, Grow House, and The Magnificent Seven are well-known to people who know Rudy. Um, the new Neverwinter expansion, Undermountain, has Rudy doing the voice of Dernan, the proprietor of the Yawning Portal. And on top of all of that, uh, Rudy is a U.S. Army veteran, award-winning professional dungeon master, and creator of worlds. Whew. Mm, I, I, need a, a lot. I need a break now. Do, do, yeah. you know, do, do you feel like that you've done all those things, or is it just a, a big blur at this point? <laughs> I think it's a bit of a blur. Yeah. Uh, I've been very fortunate to get to engage in a lot of those opportunities there, uh, either in front of the camera or doing voiceover, which a lot of those uh, that you mentioned were. Like for Fury and for Magnificent Seven, they had me voice matching uh, very specific uh, mega stars in that. That, you know, lines aren't necessarily entirely clear. I can do voice match pretty well and with a decent mimic. Makes nice. for a good dungeon master as well. Oh, absolutely. Have you have you ever put up a uh, you know a, on your stream or anything on you know how to how to do voices? No, it's on the agenda to kind okay. of wrap that as well into uh, a kind of like dungeon master master class sort of thing where I can start to uh, maybe do a little bit more instruction on not only story arc and uh, and how to build good NPCs that are engaging but also how to embody them. Sweet. Uh, which, some of these things are things that you and I talk about on a pretty regular basis. People might not know this, but I get to gloat on Sean a little bit at the moment. Uh, Sean is one of uh, less than maybe three or four people that I consider to actually be a mentor to me in the gaming world. Uh, when I first came in to the uh, author end of things, I had, I think, maybe met you once or something like that at a con, and then we just started talking a lot, and a lot of what you were saying made a lot of sense to me coming from my film background, and then kind of whenever I needed help or whenever I had a question about that, like about the way that you structure a module or the way that you were working on campaign stuff, 
or even how best to get the information across to a dungeon master when running these things. I would go to Sean, uh, also Greg Marks, and a few other uh, very you know choice select people that I knew would uh, had the experience and that also kind of knew how to communicate with me too. Because you know we uh, we've spent quite a bit of time going back and forth now, but there's also some other Army veterans that Sean knows very well in our community from uh, doing Adventures League or. Uh, stuff like that. Oh, we didn't mention my Adventure League model. Ah. This is true. This is true. Uh, I know that you have a couple of, at least a couple of CCC adventures as well as some Adventures League adventures. Yeah, I wrote, uh, I think the one that I'm the most proud of or that I enjoy the most is uh, 7-3, A Day at the Races. So mm-hmm. the Cholton Dinosaur Races, uh, the big massive event that we got to put on for that. And I've had multiple people come up to me at conventions and tell me that that was like their favorite module for introducing new people to D&D because it's, uh, it does have a little bit of each pillar that we are supposed to do, but it's not necessarily all about just engaging in the mechanics of the thing. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. probably funny because I engage in the majority of the mechanics for the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron and Morgan Miscellany. Mm-hmm. And then Xanathar's Lost Notes is a, a very player option heavy book as well. Sure. Let's let's step back and and talk about you in terms of kind of your gaming life from from a youngster to today. Um, you know, how did you get started in gaming, D anD D in particular, and you know, what was your path to to where you are now? I mean, I'd always been a good D anD D fan as far as things go with uh, Dragonlance. I came up reading a lot of Dragonlance. I read a lot of the World of Warcraft books. Uh, and I read some of the Forgotten Realm stuff. It didn't grab me quite as much as uh, other works did. And I would always gravitate towards RPGs, uh, both in video games and kind of like more tabletop board gaming stuff. But my, I'd only had a few experiences with D&D. We all know that it's highly accessible these days, but mm-hmm. growing up in a very sports-oriented uh, southern town, it was not necessarily everywhere for me to get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And luckily, when I moved to Los Angeles, there were uh, other opportunities. I got to, uh, I got reintroduced to D and D next. In mm-hmm. when that was coming out, what was that? Two thousand. When did we start playtesting that? Two thousand thirteen, twelve. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like two thousand twelve or thirteen, right around that. So I was fortunate enough to uh, know some producers that worked on like X-Men and Transformers and uh, some of the writers, actors, editors, stuff like that, that maintained a standard game. I think they were playing 3.5 prior and then they got to play test next and I got hooked on it Hmm. and I started like devouring pretty much every word. I might be one of the few people that uh, without intending to ended up memorizing page numbers of things, uh, <laughs> stuff like that, just so I had a quick reference before we had the wonderful thing called D&D Beyond. Right. Uh, a little shout-out to them. Oh, yeah. And that was really where I started getting to uh, stretch my wings with 5th edition, but that lit that fire that I was going to be uh, going and seeking out the game stores that had it as soon as it came out and then also the conventions because the convention circuits in la we do uh like we have a strategic con i think is the overall mm-hmm. arching 
uh, convention and there's like four of them like every quarter. Gotcha. So for a couple of years I was doing, uh, I was playing every quarter for an entire weekend and uh, towards the, the end there I was DMing like 16 slots mm-hmm. per uh, con, which I didn't realize how ridiculous that was. Yeah, that's doing 16 anything over a weekend. If I had to do 16 push-ups over a weekend, I would be uh, in, in trouble. But, uh, yeah, running 16 slots of, of D&D can, can be exhausting, but it also teaches you so much. Uh, oh, yeah. Because you have all these different players sitting at your table, and you've got to switch gears and be able to handle different player types, and you know, all of that is is a great experience. And I'm I'm interested in L.A. as a gaming scene because back during third edition days, maybe even during fourth edition days, um, they tried to start a Gen Con in Southern California. Right. And that went over like the uh, proverbial lead balloon. Uh, and I think it maybe only lasted one year, maybe two. It just didn't seem like there was an audience for it uh, in Southern California. And then as, especially with, with fifth edition, it seemed like not only did an audience either move there or, or grow there, it's sort of becoming a hub of of play with all of the film industry people that are, either played it before and then got out of it to when they went into their jobs or uh, you know, are, are growing up with it now and using it as a storytelling tool to, to, uh, to increase their craft. Yeah. I mean, I think it gives people an easy way to get their feet in the pool of collaborative storytelling. Mm-hmm. There are one of the things that we're really fortunate with here in LA, which by the way, I have, uh, don't let me forget to go back and touch on why conventions are spaced the way, way they are. Mm-hmm. But we're fortunate here in LA to have a creative process uh, in the Hollywood side, at least of like how to blue sky, how to work together with writer, other writers, how to communicate back and forth and then how to go off and like in the TV room, you take different episodes, but they still have to all have the same narrative flow, the same writing style. You have to be able to learn how to write in the voice of the creator not your own voice. Mm-hmm. And that's a very good tool to take into dungeon mastering uh, because you essentially have to take the voice of whoever wrote the module, add your own flavor to it, but ultimately stay true to the story mm-hmm. and to what was written about it. Uh, we saw, I mean, that's that was one of the big things that made it such an easy transition for me, I think, coming from writers' rooms where I was like working uh, in the Flash writers' room around it. Um, I really enjoyed that process. Mm-hmm. The reason that I believe that uh, LA couldn't support like a Gen Con, per se, is Gen Con has a certain expectation of mm-hmm. how big it's going to be. And the. With, this was prior to having a good amount of social media and also prior to 5th edition. Mm-hmm, so true. right now, what I've learned through uh, some of the luminaries that I'm fortunate enough to, to get to chat with, as I set up the live streaming for different conventions like Gary Con or Gen Con, the, uh, the way that it works is that those cons in the center of the country are typically going to have a greater area in which to draw people 
from. So mm-hmm. more people will drive up to six hours than they then rather get on a plane for a couple of hours. Plus the cost is, you know, variable. Sure. So people coming to LA, you've essentially, you're on a coast. So you've essentially cut off six hours in the Western direction mm-hmm. uh, that anybody could come. True. So that's, that's kind of why, but I think that, uh, with the advent of social media becoming such an advocate for it, we may have kind of eclipsed some of that because there are just so many people that are hungry to play and didn't know that it was an option prior. Very true. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. And it's it's funny because when I when I think of you and, and your your work in in the hobby, uh, I think of all the ways that your your other skills, your acting skills, your your film writing. Uh, you're you from <clears throat> producing how that uh, informs your game design. Uh, could you just touch on that? And you you have a little bit already, but just touch on that and, and tell us, you know, what skills one brings to the other. Well, we're really fortunate. I think, again, I had great mentors and uh, even having Jeremy and Merle's as, uh, somewhat mentors when it comes to designing different uh, different subclasses or different classes, uh, or even how the mechanics of an encounter would work, which is kind of where we dip into it a little bit more when we're writing modules. Mm-hmm. It's all story-based, and so we come up with the reasoning, not in like a reverse engineering way, but like we kind of fact-check each thing based on if the mechanics are supporting the story, if the story is supporting the mechanics, and if both of those things are supporting the player or the dungeon master. Mm-hmm. Because if it's too complicated or too complex, we see systems like that really have a time, like they struggle pretty bad, mm-hmm. uh, you know, without calling out previous editions. Right. There's a scenario where there are, that, there, is a, there are people that want that game. Mm-hmm. And they have that edition that they can stay and play with. For what... What I learned out of this is that mechanics is essentially, uh, I don't know how many people know this either, but I'm essentially a paralegal when it comes to being able to write contracts and whatnot. And it's because it's very much like doing mechanics and they inform each other about how to make sure that rules are clear and concise and that they don't contradict each other in different ways. And you can't have a story that contradicts itself either. We call those plot holes, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing that... uh, all of the things have process. Uh, each each leg, each pillar of the adventure has a process that has to be gone through and heated and appreciated and then can fact check itself against the other legs. That's uh, I guess that's the approach that I kind of looked into that as far as like how being an actor uh, might have helped inform these things is that one of the things that we have to learn, especially as Dungeon Masters, is how to be malleable to the suggestions of other people, recognizing that the story is not our story individually. It is the group's story. So we are collaboratively telling that story, which is what I touched on a little bit earlier with the mm-hmm. uh, screenwriting for the TV rooms. You have to be able to sit in a room, and if somebody says, oh, yeah, that idea doesn't work, you have to be able to not take that personally because it's not about you. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that you're delivering the best possible product to the audience. Mm-hmm. And you get that same thing on the reverse where when you're trying to figure out how to give that note, you're doing it in a way that is respectful and helpful, 
uh, as opposed to allowing ego to come in or, or needing to prove that you are better than somebody else. It's really about remembering that you are taking care of the, uh, the greater good, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah, I want to. I'm going to step back for just a second and talk about the the acting thing because it's what I've found is when people who are DMs talk about skills as acting, they don't think of it in terms of collaboration. They always talk about it in terms of entertaining, of doing oh. the funny voice, uh, and so it's it's. I think it's very refreshing to hear you talk about the acting as that collaboration as opposed to just the emoting of of the content um i think that's a that's a great point that might be missed on non-actors who think of uh dming in terms of acting well let's yeah let's break that down a little bit more there is a direct uh i would say correlation but there's there's a direct connection to the amount of communication that you do as a dungeon master or as a player and being able to communicate clearly the ideas of what's going on, even if you can't do a voice or if you, you don't do the quirks of a character or whatnot, all of those little things are just tools for helping you communicate the gravity of a story or the stakes or the things that might trip up the adventurers along the way. You don't have to be able to do any of that stuff as long as you are being you are communicating clear and concisely and considerately. Mm-hmm. You are allowing people to be open to the uh, kind of to open themselves up and to be vulnerable with you and the group. And ultimately, you'll find that once that's available, once you've kind of created that environment for people, that the voices and the mannerisms and everything will just come out because people don't have the fear of being judged. Mm -hmm. People are just excited about playing the game and telling that story with you. Hmm. So to me, acting, especially stage acting, is all about giving to the other people and allowing yourself kind of taking that first step to say, maybe I don't know you, maybe I've never had, uh, maybe this is my first day on set with you, but I have to give you the respect of, and, and the hope really that you are going to be a, uh, a considerate, a caring individual that I can bear my soul to you mm-hmm. so that everybody else gets to, appreciate or enjoy the experience that you and I are living in and that you get that same thing in D and D. So it's all about being collaborative and communicating that as we go. (laughs) Interesting to, to, uh, to go one more step. So you, you got into fifth edition and at that point, were you even thinking of in terms of streaming and, and using your knowledge of that side of, of the entertainment business in, in D and D or were you just playing D and D and then something came along that said, Hey, maybe we could stream this. Uh, the second I was okay. just playing D and D. I ended up going to an event, uh, for the storm Kings thunder launch. And I got to meet a bunch of the, the people that were working on D and D, uh, including Chris Lindsay and Steve Phoenix. And we all became uh, best friends very quickly. And then that kind of, uh, parlayed into a thing where D&D was getting more uh, more interested in the idea of live streaming. Mm-hmm. And knowing a little bit of my background, knowing a little bit of Satine's background from some of the conversations that happened there, they were like, hey, why don't you guys do that? Like, show us that you, you know how to do this thing and we'll, you know, we'll help support you. 
and that's kind of how Maze Arcana was born. He and I took it from there and uh, showed that essentially on my um, on my military disability <laughs> money, we were able to kind of put together a, a packet, an outline, and put up eight episodes with very little assistance on webcams and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what we call San Franciscoing everything together, like everything's on a shoestring. Okay. And from that, we were able to prove that we knew what we were doing and we were able to uh, then continue that networking out, finding sponsors that could get us better uh, filming equipment, get mm-hmm. us better, uh, kind of like help supply the things that upped our production quality. And so initially, none of it, like I didn't know that I'd be writing for d and I didn't know that I would be, doing all of these things, it was kind of the uh, flurry of chaos that live streaming kind of creates and the hype around it. Mm-hmm. And we can see from the explosive growth that Satine had when she be- when like we started this thing and then when she became community manager, like when she and I met, she had less than 12,000 Twitter followers or something like that. And by within a year of, uh, like actually I guess within two years of us starting Maze Arcana, we got her up into the... the early 40s nice so that shows you the fervorance that people want to uh find their uh inspirational leaders and and want to believe in those those kind of scenarios and and it it all it was just born from that chaos so we (laughs) kind of rose up from that chaos yeah i i think i don't think anyone when fifth edition started could even conceive how popular it would be and what what the technology changes of the time would bring to uh, the game. And so, oh, yes. Dreaming yeah, it, ended up being a thing. Like, uh, Greg Tito got a, a big award from Hasbro about using the marketing aspect of streaming. Right. And I think that we can all be, uh, we would we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, or at least pay a little uh, nod of respect to how fortunate we were that Critical Role and Geek and Sundry were figuring that stuff out as we were going and we were kind of neck and neck learning about how to enhance the uh the median mm-hmm. for kind of the the good of of what dungeons and dragons really meant to be yeah uh, which is community right it's along those lines i i've always kept an eye on hasbro in terms of their their business for how they talk to their investors or how they uh, communicate from their board of directors or their, you know, their CEO, um, in terms of games, not just D and D games, and for forever, D and D never made a dent in any of their communications. It might have been a one line on one report each year, and that was it. And not long after fifth edition started and all the streaming started to come out, you started to see. You know the president of Hasbro go on to these talk sh- uh, money talk shows on CNBC and actually start talking about Dungeons and Dragons. And I never thought I would see the day that you know that someone in that position with that much investment in the business side of things would be holding up D and D as as an example of anything uh, that they want right. to talk about. So it's just it's crazy to me. Uh, I'm just not just in terms of the popularity of the game, but in terms of the business side of things, still blown away by by where we've come um, because of 
all of these things like streaming and a really good game and just the right time and the right stories being shown uh, and the right entertainment that the that the world wants right now is fitting into the mold that the game brings. Absolutely. And it's the, it's interesting that you ended that with the world because it has gone international. A lot of the mm-hmm. reason it's gone international is because of the access that we have and, and what streaming kind of creates. Uh, the last couple of years and leading up here to the summer, I'm not sure. I'm sure that this will be released before we go. But the D&D in a castle where we go to Europe, we find the castle and we play Dungeons and Dragons for four or five days. We have like kind of a mini convention with people uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. This year it'll be in England at Langley mm-hmm. Castle. And next year, who knows? Right. But and it was, it was in, in France, France last year. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. In a chateau. <laughs> nice. So, right. So we have like the incredible opportunities that are essentially being afforded to us because of the spread, the viral spread of Dungeons and Dragons and the massive popularity and really like that desire for people to be able to find a little bit of of solace from their day-to-day stuff where they can go in and actively use their imagination, Mm -hmm. not necessarily playing with the computer, but, but playing with people who are also saying, yes, I like what you're doing, or yes, I'm here to have this experience with you. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, it's funny because we look at the world in a cyclical nature of like uh, the way, even the way TV shows have worked. They used to be all serialized. They became episodic. They went back to being serialized. Now, mm-hmm. stuff like that, the way that movies have been going, we're, we're very thoughtful uh, about how our timeline just kind of keeps working in a cyclical nature. Mm-hmm. And that I'm hoping that we don't see D&D fall off at any point because I'm stoked to see how far it can rise, uh, how much uh, inclusion and inclusivity we can uh, continue to, to stoke its fire with. And I think that if we're kind and considerate, D&D is something that can change the world. I wish uh, our world leaders had to sit down and play right. uh, D&D because I think it would completely drastically change the way that so many people uh, approach life and partnerships. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I don't, you know, you talk about that cyclical nature and it's very true. We have to be very aware of that. And I'm wondering, we really haven't seen D and D go as far as having its own movie or its own Netflix show or its own network show. Um, you know, we've gotten to the point where, the street Twitch and, you know, Geek and Sundry and, you know, these places are hosting at, and that is where a lot of the younger generation is getting their entertainment, but we haven't seen it push into those other areas that might be one magnitude of viewership higher. And I'm wondering when, when we do that, I wonder what happens. Well, I think that they're making a smart decision in giving the or taking the time to make sure that it gets done right because when we have seen those things in the past they were not necessarily uh cultivated in a way that made them uh reach out and Mm -hmm. made them inspire a new generation of players which is ultimately what we want out of this right D&D obviously can make a lot of money off of a movie with the licensing and whatnot and preferably like with merchandise but ultimately if the core book doesn't 
uh, hold its own, the mm-hmm. game itself is going to have less of an impact. And so the movie itself will have less of an impact. The whole reason that the Marvel Universe is so explosive and expansive is because the core material was good. Mm-hmm. And it is some of those early comics that inspired the filmmakers to do such a good job and to give it the reverence it's required. And mm-hmm. so I appreciate that Wizards has been very cautious about entering that space and not just like handing it off to the first person who's willing to give them a better end of a licensing deal. Yeah. Hasbro is being very smart about that. Yep. Yep. It's almost like they've you know, been in charge of these huge brands before. <laughs> yeah. Something like that, you know, and they're really killing it right now with all like they're, they are already engaged in other things with Hasbro, with uh, yep. Netflix uh, specifically having large properties that they've done a good job of bringing into the this millennium mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, when we remember it back in the 80s, uh, that kind of a thing, which right. uh, I guess that kind of dates me a little bit like that. But <laughs> well, uh, we, we won't we won't date you anymore. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Uh, you know, I just had my 35th birthday, so I'm not that old. Okay. Uh, in the in the scheme of how people like every time I say like oh man it feels like I'm getting old my you know my low back like all of my military injuries and like yeah. stuff like that and somebody's like well how old are you 25 or 30 <laughs> and I'm like yeah that's what I am yep I'm I'm not going to say how old I am but I will move on to a topic that is I'm sure near and dear to your heart which is Aberon so as you uh, as you did these streams, you were able to uh, create content in Eberron, which no one else could really do at the time, which puts you in a unique position when it was time for Eberron to to be gamified again for 5th edition. Um, you had some great experience in that, and that has led you uh, to work on some products. Yeah, I was very fortunate to have a good relationship with Keith Baker from... Uh, from Satine, she introduced me to Keith through her charity. And uh, when that happened, like I helped her basically set up CCD20 the last couple of times that that it's happened, like post her um, car accident. Mm -hmm. And I helped produce both of the, the ones that we've had in the last few years. And Keith is a very active part of it. I don't know how much she knew from the situation or like from, you know, the contest back in the day, but Eberron was what they'd been playing for CCD 20 every time. Mm -hmm. And so I got to meet him. I fell in love with the world, uh, with the Warforged, with, you know, all of the things it, it, to me, it's a, it's a setting that speaks to my storytelling, uh, desires Mm -hmm. in the sense that uh in the sense that a world with no consequences of no consequence which is like kind of my quote of how i go through not only life uh but you know all forms of gaming so there Mm -hmm. should be you know give and take drawbacks to to risk and reward etc and Mm -hmm. eberron is ripe for that it's essentially basically every harrison ford movie ever made (laughs) all jammed into one setting which is phenomenal Mm mm-hmm so I was fortunate enough to have a good relationship with him. And then we got the license to stream Eberron uh, from D&D. We were the only people that could do an official live stream. And so that kind of afforded us a little bit of an opportunity to give people a unique view on things. And it gave me the opportunity to start tinkering around with mechanics. And mm-hmm. so by the time that 
D&D was ready to uh, set up Eberron for being the second setting coming out after the Forgotten Realms, I was already, like, Keith and I had already done a good majority of these mechanics, and when they went to Keith to get that kind of ironed out, it was a sort of a no-brainer that I'd be included on it, too. So nice. we were able to push through the uh, the mechanical portion of Wayfinder's Guide pretty much with just taking what we had already created and tying those loose ends together. So about, I'd say about, like, 80, 75 to 80% of what mechanics are in Wayfinder's Guide, uh, we had already had set up and ready to go. There was obviously a little bit of uh, molding after that where you have to kind of uh, adjust and balance and stuff like that. And we had to rethink a couple of design things. Um, but for the most part, there's a good bit of it in there that is that we were already using in the early Maze Arcana uh, episodes. There are, and then obviously, and Sean, I'm sure you've probably done a, a podcast entirely on this subject before, but there are things that get changed after you turn stuff in. Oh yeah, that they the you know they want a specific look on, or they want to try a new mechanic. That's like one of the things that happened with uh, Eberron or with Wayfinder's Guide was like we turned in a specific way that we wanted the Warforged uh, armor system to work, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Yeah, we love this." We also want to try this. So we're mm-hmm. going to try this. We're going to release it like this and get to see what the feedback is like that to see, yeah. you know, because sometimes if they already have a good idea of what they want to do, they're excited about testing something else to see what the response of it is. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that. that uh, and then that contributed to Morgrave Miscellany because Keith and I had a lot of stuff left over that we had already made, like a bone knight, like the Cataclysm Mage, etc. Mm-hmm. that added or that that had a lot more um worth in the world and needed to be put out there but that was larger than the scope of what wizards asked for for wayfinders so they gave us the green light to go ahead and make more grave miscellany right after that uh, and it took us a few more months to finish off the uh the grand scheme of that but it's doing well it's already up to platinum it was it was a uh, platinum sales within I want to say forty-eight hours or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it, it definitely didn't. It definitely didn't take long. There's definitely an audience uh, for Eberron out there. Yeah, I'm hoping to see it also reach the uh, the mythical status, but uh, you know, oh, yeah. we'll see. It's, I, it's I, doing pretty well. I, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it's just it's just not going to do it in twenty four hours again. That's all. No, probably not. But I no. think you make a great point because people who um, you know who who don't write in the industry or who might write and put something up in the DMs Guild, it's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around the process that you have to go through for um, for, for creating this official content, especially when it's the very mechanical stuff like classes or races or, or the archetypes, uh, subclasses, spells, the, the, that sort of thing. Um, and especially these days where Wizards really wants to take the time and the care to make sure they get it right, like they did with the base rules themselves. So, you know, you could turn something in, even in a regular adventure that you write, which doesn't need as much mechanical care uh, as as the, the more crunchy bits. Um, even then, you p- might see it change drastically. So when you turn in something like, uh, like a subclass, um, it's going to get a very serious scrubbing uh, 
in, in any case, and then if they do want to try something different because it's an, an unearthed arcana or a playtest sort of situation, then you know anything goes. But I, mm-hmm. I've kind of learned to just say, yes, that I am a small part of this process, and they are the gatekeepers uh, in a good way, right? They're, they're, they're keeping the, the integrity of the, of the product uh, that they want. So, you know, I will let my muse speak to me, and then I will let their muses speak to them. And something will come of it. Hopefully, something that's that's really good for the players. Well, that goes right back again, cyclical, right? It goes right back into us having that conversation about the writers' room, about yep. being able to speak in somebody else's voice, and not having your ego bruised when things get changed or when uh, there's a different suggestion or a different path that has to be followed entirely. There's been times when I've had to scrap entire storylines in a script because mm-hmm. somebody two scripts or whatever before you know, kind of stumbled onto something in the show and was like, ooh, yeah, that's actually the better way to handle that. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to scrub a bunch of stuff. And that's part of the adventure. You can't Mm -hmm. look at it as a a defeat or as a a negative. You have to look at it as like, ooh, this is part of the creative process. I'm Mm -hmm. so thankful that I get to be a part of it, that I'm Mm -hmm. allowed to be in the room. I think you might have said something to me uh, at Origins, two or three years ago i can't remember if it was you or greg but i'm sure you were both sitting there uh when we were talking about how 75 percent of the most important decisions in your life happen when you're not in the room Mm -hmm. and that is so that's why your attitude and your outlook on gaming uh Mm -hmm. and on collaboration needs to be so open because Mm -hmm. People need to be able to trust you just like uh, in, in doing mechanics or writing, just like they do at the table. It can't be about ego. It has to be about taking care of the material and about taking care of the people around you that you're doing this thing with. Because you are essentially, especially with uh, how big D&D has gotten, you're going to walk into battle every day with <laughs> a bunch of people hating on your stuff. Yeah. And those people that you're doing it with, that you're writing with, need to know that ultimately like, you're not going to be shaken by that and that you're going to be there to produce a good product in the view of the company, not in mm-hmm. your view. Yeah. And it, it only grows exponentially the bigger the product is. Even if you're putting just throwing something up on the DMs Guild, you're probably working with you know, an editor or a layout person or an artist to, to make a cover. Uh, so there, even then, even for maybe a small 20-page product or 10-page product, you're working with three or four people. Now think about it in terms of publishing a hardcover book uh, like Wizards would. Now you're talking about the literal cast of thousands, right? You're talking about typesetting, and you're talking about 5, 10, 20 different artists that an art director will need to work with, and that will in- inform your writing. I remember working on the Undermountain uh, hardcover for fourth edition and my writing on that was so conscripted based on the fact that this was going to be a uh, a box set and mm-hmm. we couldn't use monsters that were not going to be either minis in the box or the the circular little pog like tiles mm-hmm. um, so I already had to go into the writing before I even sat down to write. I had to realize that I could not use a monster. I could only use two monsters that were larger than medium sized. Right. Right. So, 
So I had to use those sparingly. And then by the time the book came out, it wasn't a box set anymore. It was just a book. And so I'm sitting here flipping through the book going, boy, it would have been great to use a large size monster at this point. But I had to not use a large size monster because of this reason uh, that turned out to be not even a reason because they changed the way the the, pub, uh, the product was going to be presented. So, you know, all of these things go into it and no one who's on the receiving end of the book realizes that this went into it. So. And there's nothing well, you can do about it. You just have to make the best with the situation you're handed. Yeah, even as some like the first thing as guild adepts, because you and I were both uh, guild adepts. Mm-hmm. The first thing that had real mechanical uh, stuff, like options, player options, DM options, from that mm-hmm. was XLN, was Xanathar's mm-hmm. Lost Nodes, yep. where we provided multiple new subclass options, and that was a huge undertaking. Uh, and that was like, I was the lead designer on it. So there was a lot of, of going back and forth with, uh, when people would put up the new, uh, when they would send in, you know, the things and us having to go back and forth about the balance of it, not just the balance of it against the other things in the book, but the balance against things in the PHB, right. uh, or now, you know, in, in Xanathar's, like we had a lot of stuff that we had to balance. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, like, the entire, I think almost every guild adept, if not every guild adept, had some contribution to it. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful and also uh, <laughs> very, uh, a, a burden in a good way. Like it's, right. a, it's a, a new thing to experience to go, oh, wow, I did not realize the level of what this was. And I, I spent a lot of time not sleeping so that we could get that thing done in the time block that we had because we all had other projects that we needed to go work on. Yep. Um, you know, we had people that were currently working on at the time, people that were already working on water, uh, water deep mm-hmm. doing the dragon high stuff while True. at the same time going through what we were doing right. uh, to release a good product that kept the, uh, the bar for being a guild ad up, up there where it says like, Hey, no, we like, this is something that to be aspiring to. This is the mm-hmm. level that we, we want to put out content. So it was very important for us to learn how to communicate with each other and to learn how to take care of each other in those scenarios. Yep. Yeah, I'm going through something similar right now with a, another Xanathar's product that was in the works way back then, but it was Xanathar's enemies and allies. Yeah. Uh, uh, creating monsters or NPCs in this case, but with the monster stat blocks based on all of those subclasses from Xanathar's. And it got pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. And finally, I came to a point where I said, if I don't step up and work on this, it's not going to get done. So that's what I've been working on for the last month, I feel like. Um, and that's a much smaller, easier-to-manage product than Xanathar's Lost Notes was. So I can only imagine what you must have been going through at the time. Uh, well, you know, luckily I had you around <laughs> to uh, have conversations with it about and to talk about how we uh, ought to try and handle certain other situations that are coming up with it and how to handle mm-hmm. people's time to be yep. respectful of it. Uh, right. Those were all wonderful uh, to have, you know, your, what it, how many, did we figure out how many modules you're up to at the moment? Are you, you, did you surpass uh, 500 yet? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's been a lot of really good opportunities for me to learn more and more 
about what we're doing, how we're going about the, uh, how we're going about learning to uh, collaborate and how to make sure that the vision of the person who's giving you, you know, their work and their time doesn't get completely ignored as you go to update uh, or balance everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that actually helped me quite a bit when going into Morgrave Miscellany, which you also have some content in, you and Greg and mm-hmm. uh, a couple of newcomers, as well as the majority of it being written by Keith and I. Uh, we, you know, that gave me a, I don't know that I necessarily would have been up for doing Wayfinder's Guide or for doing Morgrave Miscellany if I hadn't had the experience on Xanathar's Lost Notes uh, mm-hmm. or Day at the Races or any of the other CCC mods. And the fact that uh, Xanathar's Lost Notes is still, like, this month we had over 100 sales on just that uh, right. that one property. Mm-hmm. So giving me those, and, and more and Morgan Miscellany, you know, as the, as the next step in what I was doing, that Morgan Miscellany is at number one currently on the DMs Guild. It's mm-hmm. gone over platinum. We're rapidly approaching Mithril. And I'm excited to see how far it can go, especially without the support that Wayfinder's Guide had from DMs, right. where they were promoting the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an exciting time, an exciting process for all of that stuff, and, and yeah. it gives us the opportunity to understand a little bit more the challenges that we face, especially because you can, you can attest to the fact that our space, unless you are a big publisher, is not necessarily one where you will be making a bunch of money. Uh, True story. Yeah, like even the critical role people up until this latest Kickstarter that made them, you know, seven and a half, eight million dollars, mm-hmm. even they all still have other jobs. Right. The critical role is a part time job. Mm-hmm. And there are people sometimes when they're they ask me, like, Well, how do I make that my job? And I'm like, You you make it a, a side thing. Like right. if you want to be a live streamer, it it is a it's the same information it's the same warning that we give people that come to the film industry. If you can do anything else with your life, go do that. Right. But if this is what you want to do to the point where you're willing to take the hard knocks, you're willing to go through the uh, the anxiety and the depression of not having work, then having too much work, then having mm-hmm. no work, and people you know crapping all over your stuff, to then them lifting you up on their shoulders as being somebody who can help save the industry, like whatever it is, right. you need to be ready to roll with that because it's not something to be taken lightly. No, it is definitely not. Any any creative endeavor, I always tell people, do it because you have to do it. And if you don't have to do it, then you know do it when you want to. But the only reason I'm in the position I'm in is because this is something that I would do even if I wasn't doing it professionally because I have to write. I just have to. If if I don't write, I don't sleep. So Yeah, exactly. You know, so that that's just that's the way it is and if you're one of those people then then great <laughs> or I'm sorry for you, but you know, great as well. Uh, yeah, but, you know, the I life think of a freelancer is hard and yeah. it's that whole like desire or the need really to write and to get that content uh, written, maybe not even for anybody else. Like you have mm-hmm. to be able to, to just do it for yourself and be happy with it. Like I was doing the design and I was writing adventures and I was writing screenplays and like all that stuff well before I came to Hollywood and well, well before I started doing, uh, doing it for money, becoming, right. becoming professional at it. And, uh, somebody that 
if, if you are looking to do that stuff as a regular opportunity, you should take a look at uh, Jim Zub as a comic book freelancer and also as somebody who is very, very close to D&D, loves D&D, wrote the Rick and Morty versus D&D stuff with Patrick Rothfuss. He is uh, he is constantly putting stuff up about how to manage your finances because you have to have discipline. Anything that is going to be as free form as freelancing for RPGs requires an immense amount of discipline, not just to mm-hmm. finish your products, but even in your day to day, you know, yep. getting black coffee and adding some cinnamon to it instead of going for the massive caramel latte, <laughs> you know, every morning. Those are things that are important to consider. You got to look at the long haul uh, right. and at least a couple of years down the line if you're going to make a um, a real attempt at being a freelancer. Very true. Well, as we pass the 45-minute mark, um, I wanted to ask you, is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, any projects that you've got up- upcoming? Any uh, appearances? Uh, where can people find your stuff in out in the cyber world? Well, uh, right now we have... Uh, we're looking at kind of setting up a new studio and getting some new live streaming content out there that we're really excited about doing, uh, working with some other people that everyone probably knows in the, the industry, as well as uh, some new game creation stuff that I can't fully talk about. But, uh, you know, there are other titles. I, I think at this point it's okay to say that I've been writing some stuff for uh, some of the MMOs that are available, uh, whether D&D themed or not. And doing more voiceover projects. I actually have one tomorrow that I have to go in and uh, and do some VO for that I probably can't talk about. But <laughs> I'm excited about the launch for Neverwinter mm-hmm. as Dernan, yes. um, which stemmed out of the stream of Many Eyes last year, in which I just basically get to act kind of like a grouchy proprietor of a ball. And spend, you know, a good amount of time uh, harassing players or, you know, kind of giving them like the the cold shoulder, like making them prove themselves in Neverwinter, nice. uh, which is or in, in Waterdeep, actually, which is has been phenomenal, a phenomenal experience. And will also uh, has already kind of led into new things that will be uh, coming down the pipeline for that outside of of those uh, opportunities through video gaming i'm really excited about uh seeing how Morgrave does the new project title that i don't think the code names have been released for so i can't say them mm-hmm. and uh and seeing where the next level of live streaming is going to go because there are things that we wanted to do for you know the last couple of years that we haven't had the opportunity to do because we haven't had an appropriate size space So I'm really excited about getting into this new space, seeing what the new uh, regime will kind of look like Mm -hmm. in that and what kind of new partnerships. There's a lot of interesting merchandise situations happening, uh, you know, which we we want those things to be top quality. uh, If if we're going to be kind of selling them or putting them out there, we want people to be enthusiastic and and, uh, be something that is going to last for them. And so -hmm. we're really excited about those kind of things. And then I'm, Doing a lot of work right now, uh, this I can say, with uh, some on some of that merchandising stuff with Level Up Dice. Mm. Mm. And if you're going to any of the conventions that Level Up Dice is at, there's a good chance that if I'm at that convention, I'll be around their booth for uh, you know an hour or two during the day helping you attune to your dice or blessing your dice, if you will. <laughs> uh, 
uh, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting kind of proposition that uh, Alex over Level Up Dice made. But uh, he was like, yeah, if you're going to be around, why don't you just swing by and do this? And then we can, you know, that gives us time to be able to talk about some of the other uh, opportunities down the line. And right, so, uh, so that's, well, that's been awesome. Yeah. What are the next shows you're going to be at then? So I'm definitely going to be at Gen Con. We're doing a live cool. streaming there. Uh, I believe that Origins is on the list. Like I said before, D&D in a Castle, which is already mm-hmm. sold out. But we'll, you know, we'll have that setting up soon. Uh, Founders and Legends in the end of July looks uh, promising. We might do some uh, Toronto Comic Con. And then we've got the PAX, uh, PAX West, mm-hmm. TwitchCon. I've, I'm a little bit of a... Um, I'm a little bit crazy when it comes to these <laughs> things. We in the last uh, since we started Maze Arcana, we've done about 15 conventions every year. It was part of how yeah. you know our outreach kind of worked, and that's uh, you know you just gasped there because it really is that is way way more like it's excessive, yeah. and uh, I don't know how we managed to keep that up, but uh, it was wonderful to be able to get out there and to show the community just how much uh, they mean to yeah. to me. Really, like I obviously all the things that we're doing if there's no if it falls on deaf ears it's not doing what it's intended to do sure and it's not reaching people and we can't help build uh a safe space a community an inclusive space if there's nobody listening or nobody that wants to be a part of it so Mm -hmm. by being out there and getting to go through and have those conversations with people we uh i feel so blessed to know how much we've been helping people seeing people get maze arcana tattoos and and other (laughs) things like that means something to me that mean it means the world to me because it shows me that they uh we were there for them when they needed us to the point of permanently inking that that's impressive yeah to to have your what you're saying resonate to the point um where it's affecting people is so you know it's a it's a thing that writers dream about sometimes and often don't achieve so it's it's great that that that's there yeah i'm thoroughly i'm going to start working on a um I will be working on uh, some novel stuff in the hmm. near future, and I'm excited about getting into that for exactly that reason. Sweet. I want to have uh, a better line of connectivity in certain situations like that. It makes me yeah. really excited. Awesome. Uh, if someone wants to follow you online on Twitter, Facebook, and so on, where do they go? You can find me on all the socials at Ruti Woot, R-U-T-Y-W-O-O-T. You can also check out Inkwell Society, which is our official Eberron live stream. Like I said, we were the only official live stream for Eberron from D&D. And that one has uh, a lot of the mechanics that you'll see in Wayfinder's Guide or in uh, Morgave's Miscellany, uh, including Level Zero play, which we went through quite a bit of, and uh, how to kind of set the tone for Noir and other style things so you can find me there you can also find us right now streaming on twitch.tv slash dnd or twitch.tv slash maze arcana youtube the same uh, monikers and yeah that's pretty much where we're at right now awesome uh, well you could find me on twitter at sean merwin rudy i want to thank you so much for coming on and spending some time uh talking to, with us about the loves of your life gaming mm-hmm. and and all of the associated accoutrements that go along with it. Um, Thank you. Uh, one more thing that I do want to say is that sure. if you hit the opportunity to come to any of the conventions uh, where you're going to you know, see me be around, and especially if you're a veteran or you're somebody who 
uh, is living with PTSD. Those are big, big things right now that we are advocating for uh, is the inclusivity and the understanding and awareness of PTSD and how it's purposely, I mean, not purposely, but inherent of what it is. It is not visible. It is something that we have to be as players, as dungeon masters, something that we are taking, keeping an open mind of and uh, that we are a kind of adjusting our styles to make sure that everyone feels comfortable and confident at the table. So we'll be doing different panels on that, some of them with Dr. Megan, uh, some of them, uh, Megan Cannell, uh, with the Adams from Game to Grow, uh, and uh, Take This with uh, Dr. B. Those are really, really important to me, being former military uh, or being a veteran specifically and dealing with PTSD from war. Uh, and, and other hardships in, in life. And it's, it's important for everybody to know that there are people for you to be there to communicate with and things that are set up at the different conventions like the AFK lounges and stuff to help you, uh, and diversity lounges, to, to be able to help you kind of make it through whatever it is that you're going through and to have a safe space there to uh, recharge or to relax, even at giant conventions like Gen Con or the PAXs, mm-hmm. et cetera. Sure. All righty. Uh, and then thank you, Sean. For oh. everything, because hey, you, my like pleasure. I said, you are a mentor uh, of mine, and you have been a uh, very patient and faithful guide through a lot of the things that, that uh, we've been going through, and you've always been there for me to talk to when I needed to, and I appreciate that. Well, I feel the same way about you. I've uh, enjoyed your work. I've enjoyed your level of interaction and being an ambassador for D&D on all its various levels. So uh, I am always more than willing to sit down and share a story or a podcast with you. Well, I hope to be able to continue being uh, all of those things and a good ambassador for Dungeons & Dragons because I do believe that it can change the world for the better. Amen. So thank you to all our listeners. Thank you if you sh- support the show via our Patreon. Um, you can follow Misdirected Mark, our network, on Twitter at Misdirected Mark. And with that, I'm going to say, Mr. Rudy Rutenberg, what are we going to do now? I think we're going to go kill our own egos so that we can have some really awesome collaborative experience. Woo! Woo! <laughs> You're done with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're done with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're done with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're done with D&D. Yeah, you know You're done with D&D. Yeah, you know I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.